Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Hello, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is very, very exciting. It is. So exciting. <laughs> If the startup nation had a government and that government had a, had a minister for foreign affairs, it would probably be you. <laughs> <laughs> probably. I absolutely love it. It would make me really proud. So SDA, let's, let's jump straight into it as the, as the ambassador of the startup nation <laughs> for everything to do with tech. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? <laughs> so my name is Ila Ovil-Brenner, and I'm the managing director at Techstars Tel Aviv but also have been a serial entrepreneur and like a fan of the ecosystem for a really long time. And the founder of Yazamiot, which is the biggest uh, women's founders organization in Israel. That's kind of what I do. But also I'm a mom of three and a wife and a friend and everything else to the ecosystem. And why do you do all of that? Because your plate is very, very full. Where's the motivation from? What wakes you up in the morning? I don't feel it's uh, full. I feel it's just uh, fun. <laughs> so I was just telling your friends now that when I go to work, I don't feel like it's work. I feel like I'm doing everything that I really love. I'm helping entrepreneurs succeed. I'm, I'm kind of translating everything that I did and all my experience and all my really giant failures and successes into actually helping people. And I'm promoting female founders, which is something that I really love. So... When we, uh, when we uh, wanted to include more and more women on the show, we asked for prominent tech leaders in Israel, who should we bring? 
Hila, 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 hila. That's nice. Thank you so much. Because I do a lot of work around that and I really believe in it. So I, but I think we're still so far away. So thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. And, uh, and the work you've done in promoting women and helping startups, we'll get to all of that as the show, as the show unfolds. But really from the bottom of our heart, thank you, because I know that now with the program uh, that's going on and all the startups that they need your attention, it was very hard to get two hours out of your day to come here and be with us. And we really appreciate it. Thank you. And I love being here. This is a great place. Thanks. So let's kick it off. You started your career in startups, what? 15, 20 years ago? Gosh, it was a really long time ago. I was a lawyer. I wish I could say I went, always wanted to be an entrepreneur, like since the age of 14 and all these stories that everybody says, but no, I was just a, a really bored lawyer and I really wanted to do something different with my life. And at the time, people were starting startups. ICQ was a big thing then. And in the newspapers, everyone was speaking about innovation. And I was just looking into it and I thought it's the most exciting thing. And I just really wanted to do something more exciting. So I started off and uh, had a few companies, uh, raised a lot of money uh, for my first one, bootstrapped my second one and realized there was people were right. It's the most magical thing that could happen. So that's kind of how I landed up where I am. And about two years ago, I was approached by Techstars. I didn't know what Texas was, and I never really wanted to be on the side that selects startups or invest in startups. But I thought, wow, this is something beautiful. Uh, they asked me to come to Colorado. I've never been to Colorado. I thought it would be a great trip. So I went there and I fell in love with it. And that's kind of how I am where I am today. That's remarkable because when you started your career, there was very little going on. And today when people are starting up, accelerators, hubs, mentorship programs, Google for Startup, which you were also involved with, and so on and so forth. But back then, when you started, how did you make the transition from being a lawyer into being an entrepreneur? Wow, that's a great question because uh, it really, really was very different at the time. That's why I love helping startups now. It's really different because it was very lonely to be an entrepreneur. You needed to go to conferences and try to find people and investors and try to interest people with whatever happened. I think today it's really, really different because now there's kind of platforms and setups and you can read more and you can learn more and about all that. So Techstars, well-known name and well-known brand, but few people understand what is really going on inside Techstars. What is this program? What is it meant to do? And who are the people who well, participate? In Tel Aviv, it's the first city accelerator so i'm really proud of it it used to be a very fintech oriented accelerator and okay. it's now the first city accelerator in tel aviv uh we have around 50 programs around the world and we operate in more than 130 countries and what we actually do most of the time we have different offerings but most of the time we actually help entrepreneurs and put them in programs that are accelerators you know in tel aviv i love tel aviv Every second house uh, in Rothschild is like an accelerator. And people said to me, what's, gonna, what's different about your accelerator than everybody else? And I said, the word accelerator doesn't even translate to what this happens, um, the, what actually happens in program. It's incredible because people come in there, they get connections, they learn the statistics for Texas companies raising money. I mean, I don't want to say the exact number, but it's the highest in the world. 
and our portfolio today is around 30 billion dollars because wow. we've invested in so many companies and we have so many success stories so the idea is to be part of that big mentorship driven accelerator and actually learn and also get a lot of network so if i'm a startup I have an idea. I'm not even a startup yet. I just have an idea. I have a, I have a really basic uh, deck and maybe a co-founder and I apply. I submit some sort of a form. You ask me a bunch of questions. What is my product? What I want to do? I submit that and then there's a qualification process. Yeah. How does the qualification process look like from what you can share? So it's a selection process. It's very long and a lot of people are involved. Uh, but we look mainly at teams, like team, 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 we say. Uh, and then your market uh, opportunity and your technology and everything else. You know, the proof is in the pudding. But at the end, because we invest in people and in teams and we look for resilient, ambitious, smart, dynamic entrepreneurs that want to make a difference in this world. And it's a lot of fun. And the selection process is a bit long. There's a lot of interviews and it takes a few months. But I think... A few months. Yeah. But I think it's really worthwhile because if you get selected, you get to enter this network, which is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So what happens if I if I get selected? Do I have to show up for three months someplace and be on time and stuff yes. like that? Yes. So there is accelerators all over the world. Some of them are vertical. So you would have an impact or mobility or smart home uh, accelerator or a general one. And then uh, most of the times, if it wasn't for COVID, you would come to that place in Italy and uh, US and anywhere in, in Asia, and you would participate in a three-month program. But because of COVID, uh, a lot of things have happened, uh, and we do a lot of work on Zoom as well and online. And we take a lot of pride in that we changed all of our model to online really quickly. And so, Very cool. And describe to us a little bit about what does a startup look when they enter do they have the lingo do they understand what they're getting themselves into is it do you need to do some myth busting and help them kind of realign their expectations with with the forthcoming journey it's a great question when a startup comes in we help them regardless what stage you're in so we're completely stage agnostic we have companies that have raised two million dollars already we have companies that are at a presentation stage and what we do with each company, we deep dive with them and work with them individually on kind of finding their partnerships, building their business model uh, and all that. What are some of the misconceptions startups show up with on day one? Wow. So I say misconceptions because I myself was an entrepreneur for such a long time, right? So I know some of these misconceptions so well because I went through all of them. I could write a book about misconceptions that I had and I see startups going through it and you know what it's very difficult to tell startups this because they don't want to listen we always say entrepreneurs have happy years because they want to only hear the very good things but in general startups are very concerned about valuations they're very concerned about signing NDAs they concern with a lot of things that are kind of taking them one step back instead of taking them one step step forward. And we try to take all these barriers down, explain everything to them, make it our business to be like they were co-founders. For example, on the NDA front, would it be something like, I want to meet an advisor, but I want them to sign an NDA first? Yes. 
And the advisor goes, I'm not signing anything. I don't owe you anything. Of course. So they lose out on opportunity. They become overly discreet. They're afraid of people stealing their ideas. Exactly. And so what happens is a lot of startups are so afraid. And if you're all the time worried about being afraid from investors, from corporate partners, then you lose out on a lot of opportunities. I think that's where the community superpower comes in. Because if you are part of the community, you have that basis of trust where you feel that you can open up and be yourself and admit to the, to the complicated sides of your business and, and receive advice. And I think at the end, it's all about people, right? Even this show is about people. It's about chemistry between people. Uh, and this is where communities are all about. So I'm part of two really big communities. One is of tech stars and one is of female founders. And in both these communities, I feel like I belong. So I feel like I can ask questions and get answers and then I can be transparent and be weak sometimes. And I think that's kind of um, the whole point. And about the valuation part. So valuation, meaning the multiplier that, uh, that, uh, through which investors are assessing the company. It's basically the price tag of the business. How much will the acquisition bring in? How much is their equity worth at the end of the day? What is the misconceptions they have around that? I think valuation is a, is a bad word for startups because sometimes they're so concerned that they would lose a great partner and an investor over like 2% of the company, which can then make or break a company. My idea is to first decide who your partner needs to be and worry less about how much of the company you're given, unless it's very extreme. But in Israel, I mean, we're Israelis and people start talking about valuations at the first meeting. And uh, it's ridiculous because there's so much still to be done and so much relationship building. Uh, and in Israel, we're not that great with relationship building. We, are, we get straight to the tachlis to the core, I think sometimes it's a, I think sometimes it's a mistake because relationship is what makes businesses happen. There's also the problem of too much knowledge when you can already see a few steps ahead because you've read the book, because your friends have done it and you know, they got the evaluation wrong. And if they just waited a little longer, they could have really gotten a better valuation and so on. But you know, there's, there's a, there's a point where too much information just distracts you stalls you make you make you do bad decisions or spend time in areas that are irrelevant for your business how does the accelerator help cope focusing as a startup is very difficult also saying no is very difficult until today it's hard for me to say no about if you're an entrepreneur you want to win it all you want to do this and this and this so the idea is actually to focus and to work with experienced mentors and managing directors like myself that have gone through so many like I myself have been thrown out of so many VCs that I think I feel the pain of the startup and I know what to say to them when they come. It's making the people around you actually help you. Can you remember one of the more painful re rejections you've received from VCs? Yes, I remember every one of them. Seriously. Which one do you want to say? For example, when I was a really young entrepreneur, was one of my first presentations and it was actually by a woman. So I thought, you know, she was a role model to me and I thought she would be great. And I really, really prepared for that presentation. And I walked in and only after five minutes, she said, listen, you look like a really nice person, 
and pretty qualified, just go do something else with your life because this is never going to work. And if it, if it works, no one's going to actually pay for it. And um, I went out of there feeling like it was not constructive criticism. It was just like bluntly saying no. And it took me, I think, three days to get over that conversation because she was a role model. I read a lot about her. I thought she was really great. She was a partner at that VC. And I always remember that because when I met her about three years later, it was at a conference. I remember because I was holding a very hot cup of coffee, like this one was when it was hot. She said, oh, I knew you would succeed. And I remember that because I kind of, my coffee went like, ah, this. And I said, well, didn't you remember that you said the exact opposite to me? And she said, yeah, that's how I felt, but I knew you would succeed. So the reason I tell the story is that because investors have a very short memory and also sometimes when they tell you something, they don't even feel the same thing. They tell you that for them, it's a five minute conversation. And for you, it can be life changing. So I think the lesson to be taken from this is that you can always succeed regardless what happens and what people tell you. And also the don't take it personal. You know, she, she didn't know you. Yeah. She could have had her own issues within the office, politics, focus. She may have had someone pitch a similar idea which she invested heavily in and then it fell apart for whatever reason. So she sees that again. But the fact that a meeting with an investor took three days away from, from your week to recover and recuperate yeah. just speaks about the imbalance and, and how volatile the feelings could sometimes be. Yeah, so entrepreneurs, it's very easy to say don't take it personally, but everything about a startup is kind of personal because you when you're actually pitching to an investor you're putting everything out there your dreams your hopes your ego and you're also taking a very big burden on you it's the burden of everyone who tells you not to do it like uh, your parents sometimes your neighbors you know everybody around you and so you're going in with all this you know, when someone bursts that bubble, it, it hurts. So, Entrepreneurs sometimes see their startups as their life's work, their life's mission. Naturally, they'll be super sensitive to what's going on with it, how things unfold, and take every criticism personally. I think that in the work you've done as an advisor, you try and kind of balance that out and be, and be somewhere between the VC and the startup, help yeah. mitigate facilitate date relationship can yeah. you tell us a little bit about the role actually, of professional advisors it's actually been a, a translator sometimes no one means like something bad but when you're an advisor like on an advisory board or you have invested in a company you get the privilege of actually uh using your experience and helping them in places where they actually made mistakes when you've done a, what, eight or 10 advisory roles? Yeah, even more than that, yeah. Even more, officially, yeah. even more than that? Yeah. What is the role of an advisor in a startup? I really underestimated advisory boards when I was a young entrepreneur. That's kind of why I'm living it through with other companies. I think it's actually to help them focus and come not from an investor point of view, but actually more like a colleague and kind of help them focus their efforts in terms of fundraising, in terms of a business model. 
help them focus, I think, and take away some of the noise. How do you help someone focus? I have people who help me focus. Sometimes there's so many things to do, right? And you want to do that and that and that. And so you want to try to take away, eliminate some of the things and prioritize them in a different way. And you find founders are, are receptive of that? Or do you have to like, they're over-motivated and you have to really, really slow them down and help them kind of envision what will happen if they'll keep this pace up? I often work with founders on fundraising because I've done so much. I've got so many no's and I raise money from so many different investors, like angel investors, VCs. I raise money from Israelis and Americans and Europeans. So I like to work with them on that because I can help them understand what the other side actually wants and how they could prioritize and, and yes, sometimes help them slow down. What are the gaps that you, you said you were translators? So what are, what are your uh, recent uh, results in the Hila translator machine? Most of my results are actually translating on terms of business development. When a big enterprise like Barclays or I signed a big agreement with Pearson Education when I was a younger entrepreneur, when they talk to the entrepreneur, they have a complete different vision of what they're saying and what the entrepreneur is saying. No one's lying. Everybody wants to do business, but they, they're, they hear different things. They're saying different things. And my recent successes have been with my companies regarding business development, especially when I was at Barclays, the Techstars Barclays Accelerator. I felt like I helped them translate and mature. And when an entrepreneur says, we can do this, the enterprise here is something completely different. They can, they hear you are POC ready and POC ready is like probably a year away from where that entrepreneur thinks they can do okay. this. And that year needs to be gapped also in terms of the entrepreneur, because he needs to understand how much resource is going to go into this before this is ready. Okay. So, so when uh, an entrepreneur says, yes, we're ready, it means I need a few months to uh, get this thing you know, ready. And he really feels he's ready. You know, really he feels he or she, they feel they're ready. So. Where is that uh, confidence coming from? I think especially Israelis, by the way, which I love Israeli entrepreneurs. I mean, we're a startup nation because we're just really great out of the box thinkers. Don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. We're like straight to the point. We'll do whatever it takes. We do whatever it takes. That's the uh, kind of managing expectations. What do, you, what do you mean when you say ready? What are other things that a VC or an investor would, would see in a startup and the startup can't see for themselves? I mean, I'll rephrase it and I'll ask, what are the common exit strategies you come across? When people enter the startup journey, what do they hope to achieve? When people enter the startup journey, they don't only do it for the money. Also, by the way, I tell people, if you want to make a lot of money and not necessarily startup is not necessarily your path. I think, uh, people really want to achieve like a change. They want to, they want to make a difference in this world. I love that people want to make a difference. I have in my class today, like 10 companies, each of them are making like a huge change in some vertical. And I love that. And I think that's why Israeli entrepreneurs go into business. They want to make a difference. So let's talk about current trends. What is going on today in the Israeli ecosystem and how does that uh, correlate or, or act differently to what you see in the world? I think the Israeli ecosystem is uh, really, it's not surprising. I, I, I thought it was going to happen, but 
The Israeli ecosystem is proving again that we are out of the box thinkers. Even verticals like travel tech and others, people are really reinventing themselves. And I see that there's still more and more deals being done, investment deals. Uh, the Israelis are straight to the point. They're still as ambitious and the ecosystem is, is I think, still growing, which is amazing. And in terms of industries that are thriving right now, like places that, that you know, people should pay attention to because they're growing, what are these segments? As usual, we are very strong with AI, machine learning. Uh, we're super great with companies that are even B2C, right? That um, a lot of investors sometimes take a step back when they hear B2C. I think we still have a lot of big dreams in that respect. We're super strong with agri-tech. I'm seeing a lot of agri-tech and food tech industries uh, coming together here. So it's a lot of things going on. So if you're born in Israel and you want to start a startup, there are a few things that are going against you. The domestic market is tiny. You can't do business with the neighboring countries. There are two or three years of military service right in the middle of your life. How do you explain the... the innovation? How can you explain the velocity? I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive. You wouldn't expect this place with those starting conditions to be as successful as it is. I have so many thoughts on why the startup uh, ecosystem became what it is. And it's, I mean, so much has been written about this. I think it's just in general, the DNA, this Israeli DNA. Now that I'm a mom, I see this Israeli DNA start from really young ages. Like, if you think about it, bonfires, like Baomer. I yeah. mean, what American kid would be let, like, outside to light, like, fires? Like, Americans said to me, my friends are like, are you kidding? You're letting your kids just go out and have bonfires outside in the middle of the city? I mean, what's the craziest thing I've ever heard? And, and, it's, and the bonfire is just the end of it. There's like two weeks before that. Preparation. Preparation. You go in, you sneak into all those construction exactly. sites, you start stealing wood. A good idea, right? I mean, Americans would say, who are these people, right? And kids go to school and they, they uh, finish school at like one o'clock, not like five. They have the whole afternoon to hang around with each other and talk. And if you go to parks, you, you don't hear moms like you do in the, in the States, like all the time worrying about what's going to happen and you will fall off. Moms just sit there and chat with each other and talk about their long days. And I feel this DNA starts from a really young age of like just having this freedom. People just walk around and prepare for. I become very adamant. And then the military service, of course, which was one of the best times of my life. I had a great time. It really prepares you to be part of something and be result driven and be disciplined. You can't sleep till like eleven uh, o'clock every day, like maybe some of my American friends or South African friends have done when they were eighteen years old. And now you're goal related. Yeah, you realize you can be productive nineteen hours of the day every day. Yeah. It's going to be tough. You're going to have to give up on some stuff, but you realize that your, your capacity is, is much greater and it, yeah. builds, it builds your confidence. And you yes. can walk into a, into a venture like a startup where you don't know when it ends and like you discovered your days are awfully, awfully long and you're like, it doesn't scare you. At least you've, you've broken through that barrier. Exactly. 
And when you look at what happens in the world right now, so we mentioned agri-tech, even cannabis tech and, and food tech in Israel. Is there any other country in the world that behaves similarly to Israel? Same kind of starting opening conditions and same type of ecosystem? I don't think so. Really, I'm seeing so many and I'm interviewing so many startups from so many places. This morning, I interviewed two startups from Lisbon. I see so many ecosystems and thousands of entrepreneurs. I think there's nothing like this ecosystem. It's so alive and people really help each other. They network with each other on a very like constructive and uh, routine base. And what are the uh, some of the up and coming hubs in the world? What are some other places in the world people should be you know, looking out for, for innovation? I think Europe has really come together lately. Some really good things are happening. Uh, in Europe, it's always been, right? We have a city program in London. We have a city program in New York. But uh, I think also the Middle East is coming together. I think we're going to see some great surprises coming from our region too. Hopefully these surprises will lead to a more uh, holistic and, and, uh, and solid and uh, two-way communications, not just... Uh, not just uh, transcending the geopolitical situation. I believe that uh, innovation can bridge everything. And uh, one of my best friends uh, at Techstars is our MD in Dubai. And we often talk about that, how we can really bridge political differences by innovation. And I think it will happen. I'm optimistic. So we spoke about your uh, beginning as a lawyer, going into tech, starting one company. What happened with the first company, by the way? White Smoke became public in Israel after we failed to IPO it in, in the Nasdaq. Uh, but it was on 50 million computers. It was a really sophisticated uh, grammar checker. It was very successful and I was very lucky. But on the way, I made every mistake in the book. What are some of the memorable I, like, mistakes? I uh, changed business models like a zillion times. I raised money from the wrong people. I didn't know uh, anything about entrepreneurship at the time. I was a really young entrepreneur, but I was really, really passionate about it. And I, I would do anything for it. And I think that's kind of what made it succeed. Raising money from the wrong people. Money is money. Mm-hmm. $10 million is $10 million. When you say raising money for the wrong people, what do you mean? I think uh, a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake and we really work with our entrepreneurs and on the advisory boards that I'm at uh, to help entrepreneurs try to raise money. I mean, you don't have to be socially close to each other. I mean, you, you don't have to be friends, even though probably you will become much closer. But you need to raise money from the people that have the same dreams for the company. And uh, I raised money from different kinds of people with different dreams. And I thought I was a people's person and I could always get everyone to connect. And what's the big deal? You know, everyone wants the best for the company, but it doesn't really work like that because some people want to IPO a company and some people want to sell it for like uh, $10 million. And these different dreams create a lot of tension. So I will say to entrepreneurs, money is not money. Like you need to raise money from people that you're at least having like a conversation with and you know what you want to do with the company together because now you're starting a journey together and you need to make sure that you want to go the same way. So what is the price you pay for taking money from the wrong people? 
I'll say it in a general way, not, uh, I think taking money from the wrong people, just, uh, I will say to people, whenever I die, uh, just tell everyone I could have lived for another five years if it wasn't for those investors, right? So I think the, I think it's a very big emotional price that you pay for taking money from the wrong people. When money becomes part of the equation, it's a whole new level of stress, unfamiliar. Unfamiliar. Yes. It's not working for a paycheck. Yes. It is something completely different. Seeing, you know, a million bucks hit your bank account, you'll never see this much of money again, but it's not your salary. Yeah. This is a pot you're sitting on in order yeah. to execute yeah. on, a, on a dream that hopefully you share with someone else. Yes, and uh, you've never seen so much money in your bank account, you're right, but you're also responsible for that. And you also have a big obligation. You look people in the eye and you promise them that you're going to make money for them. I think it's a big obligation. How did you even, you know, fall asleep at night in the first day, in the first months after raising your first round? I didn't sleep for many nights, not only after the first night. I think once you have an obligation to investors, you stop sleeping well at night because you really want to deliver on that obligation. I think it's part of the journey. I mean, if it's uh, too hot, don't get into that kitchen. And it's super hot. It's super hot. But I suggest to get into that kitchen because I think it's really fun. And that was the first one. Second startup, you said, I'm going bootstrapping. I, I don't yeah. want that friction. I made really, I, I had three companies, actually. Uh, I was involved in three companies. I made different mistakes. And most of the times I failed, right? Most of the times I tried really, really hard and I failed. But I have to say, I also enjoyed the journey, like in a way. Most of the time I got up every morning and thought this is a, I wouldn't change this life for anyone else's. And when I see other startups today, I know they wouldn't change their life either. So what advice would you give younger you? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow, I have so much advice to give you. <laughs> I don't think we have time in this podcast for all this advice because I'm just like, uh, who are you, yeah. younger you? 
be adamant but listen to others. I didn't really listen. When someone told me there was no market, I deleted them from my Outlook and thought it was an idiot, even if it was like a VP at Microsoft. I, I didn't listen enough. So be coachable and flexible. I didn't really want to change the product at all. From the advisors that did get to you, that you were able to take their advice, even if it was unpleasant, what made their advice so valuable or what made their delivery such that you could receive it? I think uh, people that you really respect and that you know really respect you, it's easier to take advice from them. This is why I try to bond with the startups that I help because I think if you are in a good relationship, you're, it's easier for you to listen to, to advice. But, you know, uh, my auditors told me not to do the IPO on NASDAQ and I still did it. I, a lot of people told me there was no market in China and Europe, and I still did it. You know, there was a lot of things that like really bad mistake I made because I didn't listen. So if there was anything I would do, then I would listen more. How can you tell, but when you feel so strongly about something and when you're getting used to hearing no's, how did you develop your filters so that the right answers will, will come through and the wrong ones will stay out? That's a great question because I still don't 100% know how to do that. And I wish I had a recipe for it, but you need to filter because um, I was so used to saying, I don't care. First of all, very Israeli. Very. Very Israeli. Very Israeli. Yeah, I know best and, and I'm willing to take the, exactly. the, 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 the pay the cost. Exactly. Very, very exactly. Israeli. And then you started... 10 years ago, you started Yezamiot, Female yes. Entrepreneurs. Yes. That's the, that's the translation. I know, it's a terrible name. So the reason it's such a terrible name is because I didn't think it was ever going to grow. I thought it was going to be a really small networking, meetup, whatever. And you started, started in my back garden. 10 years ago? 10 years ago. And I thought it would be nice to sit together with a few CEOs and talk about female founders and, uh, you know, share ideas. 2010 was way, way before Me Too. It was way before, you know, even Sheryl Sandberg became Sheryl Sandberg in a way. Yeah. Uh, um, what drove the decision to invest time in that? When I started this, I felt the need to kind of share with people that were going through the same things as me. Like I was a young mom. I was uh, looking for people that went through the same obstacles. And uh, this organization grew to 5,000 female founders. We did some amazing programs with Google uh, called Campus for Moms, when moms on maternity leave actually come and take 10 weeks to develop their own baby, but also their, uh, their startup. Wow. So we did about seven of those here in Israel. And then we grew this uh, project internationally to 13 places around the world wow. with Google. It was amazing. Google for startups and my partners there were amazing. And then we did an accelerator with Microsoft and tons of uh, international corporations. And we were stuck with the name Yezamiot because that's what happened. And then we were the ambassadors of a really uh, prestigious uh, competition called uh, She Loves Tech and uh, did a lot of conferences together with Calcalis and uh, embassies and helped a lot of female founders actually go into courses to actually help them become female founders. 
So we finished one really prestigious course with University of Tel Aviv, and we did about six municipalities. So this organization really grew. We had like amazing partners partner with us. Great things happened. It seems to me that everything that you were lacking or were missing in your journey, you end up building as a service for someone else. Yeah, maybe. That's a good, I didn't think about it this way, but maybe. Uh, but this became like, wow. I really wanted, when I was a young mom, I thought to myself, why do I always need to meet young moms just because they live in my neighborhood? We have nothing to talk about except diapers. You know, like, why don't we meet somewhere more professional? And then we did Google Campus for Moms and everyone got together with their babies and were breastfeeding and at the same time starting a business. And we just like we had some great success stories from there. And it just felt like it was a great thing to do. And then Yazamiyot continued growing, growing, growing. And it just made me feel like I wish I had that when I was young. So. <laughs> What are some of the success stories that came out of that project? It's such an exciting one. Thanks. I don't know if I could share the names without asking, but we had a first exit from there uh, of two women who came in with different ideas, who uh, actually joined, came out with a third idea and exited their company about a year ago. Wow. And we had some a uh, lot of fundraising. We had a lot of men that came in, uh, a lot of VCs, actually. And I think it touched the hearts of a lot of people. I think people really realize, wow, they could be female founders here and we should invest in them. And like you said, it was before it was like trendy, you know, it was like 10 years ago. And even today, I mean, the community is very alive. They talk to each other all the time. They ask questions. We have Zoom webinars nearly every week where we bring role models. You know, the problem with female founders is that we don't have enough role models For a lot of that and so when we bring someone that looks kind of semi-normal and this is why I love that you have so many female founders and female guests in your show that's amazing because what we really want to show the world is that you don't have to be crazy to be a female founder you could be kind of semi-normal that's a good point yeah there is a very very good point you know actually I'm very passionate about it because there were really three generations of females. One was like, I don't know if you remember, like Mad Men, you know, people thought if they wanted to do well, they needed to dress like men and joke like men and have careers like men. And that didn't work for them, really, because men didn't, never treated them like they were equal. And then there was the second generation that's kind of my generation where women felt like they wanted to do everything and then told all these stories about how they were pregnant and raised money at the same time, which was true. I did that, right? But also in a way, it's super like uh, crazy because you also, you can't win at all. I mean, we thought we could win it all. You could be that and that and that, but you can't really because you give up on a lot of things. And then there's this new generation that's happening now, which I really love, the young entrepreneurs, which actually say, Okay, we're different. This is why we're different, but we still want to be equal in so many ways. I love that. So. so many things have happened since 2010 until now. You know, 
the the project with Google for moms on maternity leave. This is you know turn, taking some of the things that were turned against women, like ah oh, she's going to go on maternity leave. I can't even hire her, and using that time, that safe space as a place for innovation, for creation. I mean, it it really is exciting, but the road is still so very long. You quoted a a, a, a statistic to us a few a few uh, moments before we started. We before we went live. What was it? Something about the percentage of female founders. Female founders in Israel is estimated at around five and a half percent female CEOs, and that's a very very low number. And also uh, in the U.S. Uh, only 10% of the funding goes to female founders. And we are also about 10% of the decision makers around the world. So the numbers are really against us. And the question is, why have we come such a long way in so many things? And we haven't come a long way in this. But we're on the way. I guess we're on the way. Israel had its first uh, female prime minister in the 70s. Yes. And then, you know, first female combat pilot it was the early 2000s and it seems like there's there's equality ingrained into the society we're used to seeing female uh, fighting for the resistance before the country was even established and and yes. yet yes can you explain to me like where is this gap coming from what is it about the ecosystem that, we, that we've created that that pushes women out of it or doesn't make them want to participate Well, I think you kind of touched it in your question. That's a really intelligent way to touch it. There's really two paths to it. One is really the glass ceiling that actually exists, but also I think the power from within. So I think a big problem is that we don't really support each other sometimes in that we don't support each other to start an entrepreneurship. I mean, objectively, it's just harder because we, we leave the game sometimes for about 10 years while we have kids and then come back and it's objectively harder to come in and be like an older entrepreneur when you already have kids and and by the way you can do it i mean i have in my class today techstars uh a female founder with four kids uh all under six all right so you can do it it's doable but it's very 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 hard and we should give these women as much support as possible But the problem is that women sometimes don't really want to jump in the game because they're too scared and they don't really believe in themselves. Like if there's uh, some kind of an offering, a lot of times uh, women just don't want to jump in. They don't think they're prepared enough, whereas men were just like, ah, let's try it. I saw it all the time when I was a hiring manager. Yeah. You'd get a, you'd get a guy who'd submit their CV even though they're, they're obviously... not fit for the role, but they'll try. Yeah. They'll say, give me a shot. Let me show you. I can do it, this or that. Versus, you know, the percentage of women who just wouldn't apply or would apply apologetically. Yeah. Uh, which was, uh, which was you know, strange to see the, 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 the blasé, the, uh, yeah. the confidence that sometimes guys yeah. come with. So it's a confidence issue sometimes. But also, us as a society, we're less interested to see sometimes Woman, like when I raised money and I was like nine months pregnant, I could understand why investors were worried. You know, they didn't know how this was going to affect me and if I was going to come back in the game or not. I understand it, but we need to put that bias behind us. We need to get up in the morning and think we want to move to the next step. So if you're a VC, 
you need to put that behind you. And also, there's not enough female investors. And, you know, research has shown that people invest in people that are the same as them. If you can't have a beer with someone and go to soccer, sometimes you don't want to invest in them because you just don't feel the social connection to them. So how did you master that confidence among you, your investors? I don't think I ever really mastered it. <laughs> I still, you know, sometimes think, oh my God, this is too much. You know, I think everybody's got that, but we should teach our kids that. So I think it's uh, education. Do you think we're on the right track to solve the gender equality issues in, in the workforce? We are on the right track, but we need a lot of help. What's missing? We need a lot of government help. We need a lot of education. We need universities to encourage women to go into more mathematics. We need to get more women into be into and, and we need to help women with confidence. So despite the progress that was made and despite the general uh, notion that we are on track, there's also things that are working against us. Can you talk to us a little bit about the influence that COVID had on feminism? Wow, I think uh, COVID has really surprised it blew me away, right? I think it took feminism like a hundred or 150 years back. Wow. Yeah, I think so. I've been talking to a lot of women about this, and I feel this is very substantial. The problem is that, you know, in the, in the last couple of years, life has been very convenient. You know, people put their kids at school till like four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And the idea was we don't have to share roles because we could outsource some of the roles. Let's outsource cleaning. Let's outsource cooking. Let's outsource everything we can do. But then came COVID, and all of a sudden, we're all in the same house, and we need to reshuffle this pack of cards again. And uh, I know a lot of couples who really had, I mean, men would just go in and continue working from Zoom at home, just close the door, whereas women needed to cook and clean and work at the same time and look after the kids that are young at home. So I think for feminism, it was a really big disaster. How would you suggest that, uh, given the fact we don't know how long this crisis will last, how should we behave? I think women need to like take life into their own hands and say, okay, we're reshuffling this, but it doesn't mean I have to do this and this and this. Even if you're earning more, right? This is my life, so I need to do this. And I think it's in, in the woman's hand to kind of put their barriers up and understand what they're doing. It's not my uh, my place to maybe even say I've, I've never been a female, maybe somewhere in the future, but <laughs> it's not on the road, man. <laughs> but sometimes what happens in those situations when you experience something at home is that you think it ha- it's only happening to you. Yeah. Whereas if you connect and you speak, just like with the whole entrepreneurial journey, you realize it's happening to other people as well. Exactly. So this is why Yazamiya grew so much, because people really like to connect with each other and share ideas and also use the same tools to overcome obstacles. Thank you for that, Hila. And we're also nearly at the end of our time together. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is fundamental to understanding the things that you're working on, be it tech stars, be it promoting women in tech? I think everything just goes hand in hand. Uh, I think the, our ecosystem is just an incredible ecosystem to be in. And we're on the right path, both in terms of innovation and women. And uh, I'm happy to be here because I'm 
just uh, very proud to be part of this ecosystem and promote women entrepreneurship and of course promote tech stars. Startup Nightmares is about sharing local stories with global relevancy. And I think that's something you've done so wonderfully well for us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, where should people go to learn more about the work you do? So the Techstars website has so many different programs. And I really urge you all entrepreneurs to read about the different kind of partners we have and the programs. And in terms of Yazamiot, there is a Facebook uh, page. I urge you to go in there. We have a lot of activities, uh, investment opportunities, and everything else. I also want to thank you. I think it's incredible the work you do here, the team. So thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, it's been our pleasure. You came on a relatively short notice. You've given us a free access to your experience and, and what you've done. We hope this episode and the ones that came uh, before and after it will help move the needle in the right direction. Wow. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.